Hold on. I gotta stretch my back because I'm old. I'm old, Megan. We're both getting old. I get a heartburn after eight jalapenos. I'm growing four fucking jalapeno plants. What am I supposed to do with my life? Give them to me because I'm not that old. (sighs) Maybe. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey, guys. You're listening to a podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today, we're going to learn about the first Western modern abstract artist and also the science writer that started an ecological movement. Oh, that's pretty badass. Yeah. She's pretty awesome. Did she, like, have an expose where she revealed how shitty something was and was killing everyone? I was like, guys... Maybe we should get our shit together. Like, literally get our shit together so we're not killing ourselves on the planet. Basically. Okay, that's cool. (laughs) That's what's up. All right, so this week we've got your science writer. And then I've got potentially the first abstract painter in the Western canon. Still to be determined. She's got a pretty good case. But before I go into that, can you name me three iconic things, Milena, from Sweden? Alexander Skarsgård. Oh, Jesus, I, you know what, I made my own little list, and I was trying to think of what you would think of, <laughs> and I fucking failed. <laughs> you know what my priorities were? I was like, okay, Ikea, that's pretty solid. Uh, Swedish meatballs, don't eat them, another classic. Uh, Steg Larsson, who wrote The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series. Oh. <laughs> and then, for me, not your manly hunk, but the Swedish chef from The Muppets. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, after today, you'll be able to name an artist, Swedish painter, Hilma Offklint. Oh, yeah? Yeah. T- tell me about I'm her. I'm sure you've totally heard about her. Uh, no. Yeah, that's okay. Neither had I. Today, we're going all the way back in time to Sweden in 1862. Haven't been there before. No. Nope. Hilma of Klint was born October 26th in Stockholm. I, I think just a language barrier, you know, research-wise, there's not as much biographical information on her as some other people just because a lot of the stuff is in Swedish. And you're going to get less art historians who specialize in modern art who also happen to speak Swedish. So in terms of her family... Got an incomplete picture. So Hilma's father, Captain Victor off Clint, he was a Navy officer, a mathematician. Uh, and so with his, his line of work, they grew up by the Naval Academy, the Protestant family. She was the fourth out of five siblings. And I didn't even come across one mention of her mother. It's like, at all. Uh-oh. Yeah, and I, I had a good kind of a variety of sources and not one mention. Didn't even get her name. But we do know that Hilma's family was well off. They were part of a bourgeoisie middle class. Now they were like stupid wealthy like some of the other people we've done but I mean they also had like summer mansions they'd go vacation to in the summer. Can we get a summer mansion? That would be very nice. And actually later on in the story the two best friends they build their own summer mansion together. Let's do it. Well but um, then it gets kind of torn down a little bit. Oh. Yeah. Our, ours will live forever. Made out of stone and love and commitment and friendship and giggles. And farts. 
Um, so, I mean, they were pretty well off. And they had the means to give her a pretty solid private education growing up. Um, and it was pretty cool that they supported, you know, her want to go to, like, higher education. I mean, the family long line of naval officers. And, you know, it was pretty cool that they were like, sure, honey, go study art. Not every family is super supportive, especially if you like military families. I mean, even cooler for Helma was the fact that the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Stockholm was admitting women students. I mean, this is in the 1880s. A lot of fine art academies, especially in Europe and the U.S., were like, psh, whatever, you're a woman, you're not allowed in. Because that's some sexist bullshit. Bastards. Now, just like about every artist that we've covered so far, I mean, Helma, she was a pretty creative kid. And from 1882 to 87, she's, you know, 20 to 25, she got to train professionally as an artist at the Royal Academy. Technically, classes were segregated, and women didn't have the full curriculum offering. Mm -hmm. They were kind of pigeonholed a little bit more in terms of what was, like, a more respectable class for women, Mm art-wise. But, I mean, she was still able to go, and she was part of the first generation of women to graduate with a degree from the academy. Nice. And it was there she met fellow artist Anna Cassell, and they became, like, best friends. I mean, upon graduating Hilma, she earned top honors. Uh, She was awarded a pretty badass studio space in the heart of Stockholm's art district. I mean, Hmm. right above one of the main galleries. Ooh. Yeah, so college ended up on a pretty good note, but it did start pretty shitty. The one specific mention of a sibling, and it's of their death. Oh. Yeah, pretty crabby. It was when Hilma was about to start school in 1880. She's 20 years old. Her little sister, who's about 10 at the time, dies from the flu. Ah, fuck. Yeah. Now, growing up, Hilma was already interested in, like, spirituality, but the death of her little sister, like, really pushed that interest into overdrive. And it came really significant for Hilma and her art because she got into some occult stuff. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean... So, not aliens, just a cult. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) When you put it like that. Um, (laughs) So, for close to 20 years after school... Helma's working as a portrait and landscape painter. Uh, her landscapes, the very conventional, you know, oils on canvas, uh, soft touch of impressionism. So the scenes captured in a very soft, kind of diffused way. And that influence wasn't surprising. I mean, Helma's going to school in the creative capital of Sweden, and artists there would have known about the current trends in the art world, which essentially meant the current trends in Paris. And the shit that was taken off there was Impressionism. Now, a constant parallel to Hilma's creative work was her spiritual work, that kind of occulty stuff. And this is where things get a little weird, with Western esotericism coming into the mix. Okay. You know what? You, you kind of look and nod like, yeah, all right, I've heard about that. I remember that from English class. I mean, from I gleaned from it is that essentially it's like a catch-all phase for some religious ph- philosophical bullshit that I, like, cannot roll my eyes hard enough at. I mean, you know yeah. how I feel, yeah, about philosophy. I mean, it, it covers things like alchemy and numerology, but for Hilma, she was, like, really, really into it. And I'm going to spare you. I'm not going to go into, like, the specific isms that she was super into, but, I mean, she was she was super-duper dedicated to this shit. So people would pass her on the street and avoid her no she wasn't like spooky creepy or anything she just very much like fell into like a very niche crowd and ran with it her entire life okay yeah i mean that's her form of religion you know her spirituality like all right that's cool it works for you it worked out well and then like all right cool you do you that kind of thing (laughs) i'm just a very different person yeah yeah i mean yeah 
And I mean, like, at the time, late 1800s, like, being spiritual was all the craze. And it most likely, it's backlash to rising industrialism. But, I mean, it was seen as an intellectual pursuit. Like, all the cool cats were doing it, especially a lot of creative, you know, artists, intellectual types. And for Hilma, she got super serious with her interests. She would join these societies. And, I mean, they were tailored to individual offshoots from that umbrella term. And one of these societies, I mean, shit kind of got real. Not sacrificing anything. It's a little spooky weird. Late 1890s, Hilma's in her 30s. She's had a pretty serious relationship, go to shit. So, I mean, she's not interested in relationships at all. Rest of her life doesn't marry. Instead, she throws herself into her work. And what she does within one of these societies is she forms a group called The Five. The Five. The Five. And it's a collection of five women, which included her best friend, Anna. And they're all part of the same, you know, mystical malarkey. And every Friday for years, they'd have these seances. Every Friday night. Then that was their Friday night. Yeah, and I will post pictures of the room set up on the show notes on our website so you guys can see. And it's really funny. They had this one, like, shrine set up, and then above it, there's, like, this small framed picture of Jesus Christ. Wait, what? Because, I mean, it's still Christian-based. Yeah, I think it's just going to little different than your traditional interpretation of Christianity. I mean, what was our wildest Friday night? Uh, tequila and jalapeno poppers? Yeah. Yeah, we're pretty tame. That's it. We're pretty tame. Pretty bad bitches. <laughs> Be like, yeah, <laughs> pass me the vegetarian nachos. Crank up this Netflix. We've got cartoons to watch. We're almost 30. <laughs> All right. Well, well, that's what we're doing on our Friday night. Uh, that is not what <laughs> Hilma is doing on her Friday night. So they'd have these fucking seances. And uh, you know, from their, these meetings, there's hundreds of sketches that they do of like the like communications they'd have with these spirits. And eventually there were like a few really prominent ones that they called the high ones. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See, shit's getting a little weird. Now of the five women in this group, Hilma and Anna, you know, they were, they were the only professional artists. And Anna's like a really important figure in Hilma's life. I mean, she provides a pretty constant support system for her best friend. And while Hilma's like, she's from a well-off family with her summer mansion, Anna's super duper rich, which means her contributions are what keep the work of Hilma and the other five like financially covered. Wow. Yeah, because, I mean, they're doing all these sketches. They're generating literally hundreds of sketchbooks. Someone's got to pay for that shit, especially when they're all leather-bound sketchbooks. Oh, God. Yeah. Where where are all these sketchbooks now? In a collection. I'm glad Uh-oh. you asked. Yeah. I'll tell you in a little bit. Just wait. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, at this time, on a personal note, Hilma's life is kind of shifting a bit. After her father's death in 1898, she's 36. She moves into a new place in Stockholm with her mother. You'll like this. Uh, She works a bit at a veterinary institute. (laughs) Yeah. Did she also get shit on regularly? I hope not. She was a draftsman there, so she was doing a lot of, you know, kind of drawings. (laughs) So she was not involved in any of the uh, anal gland squeezing. She was just, you know, drawing it. Put finger here, a big arrow on her drawing. Point <laughs> finger. Wear gloves. Use lube. <laughs> Ugh, gross. All right. <laughs> That's not what I want to be thinking of. Yeah, so, I mean, you could say it's a period of flux. Uh, and then in, in 1904, at the age of 42, one of the spirits... Uh, reveals to her in a seance that she is to be commissioned for a series of paintings on the astral plane. I'm sorry, what? I, yeah, I'll repeat myself. So, 
things a bit of a flux, right? Kind of shifted around, sidling up mom, dad's gone, financially figuring things out, got to take on some new work. But then all of a sudden in 1904, one of the Friday night seances, she's 42. And by now she's convinced like, okay, the spirits, they like me the best. And sure, sure fuck enough, one of the, the high ones, the, the spirits reveals to her that she is to be commissioned by the spirits for a series of paintings on the astral plane all about the unity of everything. She had to be high. You might say that when you see her paintings too, but the paintings are amazing. She has to be high. Okay, like, see, like, shit is getting weird. I just, like, but for Hilma, she's like, bring it the fuck on. She's totally sold. She spends a fucking year prepping herself for the task. And she's got the support of the others in a group who she's leading. And in 1906, she's 44. She starts working on what would be known as paintings for the temple. Weird, right? So high. (laughs) So high. You know, earlier today, somebody told me that their six-month-old English bulldog puppy got into their cannabis oil. Oh, was it just the the CBD or did it actually have the... um... No, no. Oh. (laughs) So I imagine how high this puppy was, was how high this woman was. Oh, that poor little creature. (laughs) Oh, that sucks. (laughs) Poor little thing. Uh, Just saying. She seemed fine, but... That's good. I imagine, I imagine... They were pretty on par with how high they were. I mean, I, I didn't come across any um, suggestion of that for their little seances. Abestus in the walls. Fucks with your brain, man. Or lead paint. Lead paint. Yeah. Also, we're on the tail end of uh, some of the, the dyes being used in Victorian clothing, like the, the bright green that could have, you know, leached in. I don't know. But she got her weird shit on, and she made some art, and it's pretty solid. It's weird, but it's solid. Uh, that's why we're here. <laughs> Otherwise, we're like, eh, moving on. Um, I mean, she created 193 paintings in total for the temple. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, in a fairly short time. I mean, she makes this incredible body of work. Uh, she starts with a chunk of uh, over 100 paintings. Uh, she averaged finishing a painting every three days. And this in- included her series that she's kind of most well known for. And they're 10 paintings, the big 10. And they span over 10 feet tall, each of them. I'm sensing, first off, some sort of theme. There, there's just, there's no creativity in the titles. I mean, your artwork titles are great. Okay, a little personal note. This is how you're, I never talk about my art on this thing. You're like you're sneaking welcome. it in. <laughs> for me i have a title first and that that's the entirety of the work before i even make anything oh so i know the title of the work before i've done anything that's fair yeah other artists not so much and that's why for me like it gets under my skin when people's like untitled number 372 i'm like oh. like at least <laughs> give me like blue series number 13 like all right i can work with that <laughs> that makes sense i got it <laughs> Oh, my God. I mean, it's funny. Like, you're picking up on a system she has. And this is a woman who totally has a system. It's weird. But when you see her work, you're like, there, there's a logic there. There's mechanics. I just can't tell what it is. Because it's like it's like abstract work. And I just want to say, I think it's really cool she did paintings that were over 10 feet tall. Because she was just 5 feet. 
Oh, jeez. Yeah. She was a shorty. Did she just, like, lay the canvas on the floor and go from there? Uh, yeah, she would. There's one where you can even see a little bit of a footprint on it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, how the fuck are you going to get to the middle of the canvas? <laughs> now, like I said, 193 paintings in total were created for the temple. They've all got these kind of subdivided categories. And they're all dictated by this, like, inner code of symbolism. Uh, I mean, certain colors and symbols for, like, gender and unity and evolution and matter. But, like, looking at it, like, you have no clue that's what any of it means. But there's still, like, this weird system to it. And, like, that personal symbolic system for her paintings, like, it gives them cohesion visually. And that really helps because they're abstract as fuck. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, most are geometrically inclined. Kind of a very formless composition. We've got spheres and triangles and squares and shit. Others are a little bit more free-flowing with spirals and a little bit more loosey-goosey. But, I mean, they're all non-representational. And I, that's a big deal because when Hilma was making these works... In relative seclusion in Sweden, like, no one was doing this in Europe. Nobody was doing abstract? No, not as we know it within, you know, the Western canon. Like, mm-hmm. art art history-wise, like, the big names who brought about, like, modern abstract art are heavy hitters like Mondrian. He's that rectangle grid guy that keeps popping up. Ken Dizinski. I don't know if you're familiar with him. His, his work is, like, geometric, colorful scribbles. Okay. They're fun. I mean, these are the guys who were making work years after... Hilma. I mean, given only a few years, but she still had half a decade on them when she was doing her work. Oh, cool. And she was, she described her creative process as working through her, you know, kind of channeling what these spirits were telling her to do. That just sounds really creepy, describing it that way. You should see me shaking my head right now. Oh, no, I do. I do. No. You know, it's funny to think about it because she was having these seances and they were channeling the spirits. And you're like, well, is she hearing voices? I don't think she was. It sounds weird to describe what was going on with her, like with the seances and stuff. But it was just a different way of expressing this, like, you know, very primitive human need for religion and meaning and order and, you know, a higher entity. Like, it's weird to me, but it worked for her. And, you know, a little different. All right. Like, unlike these bigger names, like... Kandinsky, who were very public with their work and what they were doing, Hilma was not the type to seek public validation for her work. I mean, she was literally working for a higher calling, and that was probably the primary reason she didn't seek the typical, like, art world path of, you know, showing her work and selling her work in galleries. And on her, her part, I think she realized that there wasn't anything out there like what she was doing. That hesitance to put out what she was doing was kind of validated when this big honcho within the whole, like, mysticism movement of Rudolf Steiner saw her work, and he was like, that's cool. You shouldn't show this to anyone for 50 years. I'm sorry, you said Steiner? Rudolf Steiner. Like S-T-E-I-N-E-R? Yep. Okay, I know that name. He, I didn't really do heavy research on him. Apparently, everyone who's really into this, all these different offshoots of, uh, were essentially trying to suck his dick because he was a big figure in it. And like Mondrian, who I mentioned, he was trying to get him, this Rudolf Steiner, to come visit his gallery all the time. And he wasn't able to do it at all. And yet Hilma was like, hey, you should come see my work. And he was like, yeah, cool, totally. Like, as simple as that. Yeah. Ha ha. Ha ha. Ha ha ha. I know that name because he comes up in my work. What? <laughs> Oh my god, guys, I wish I could say that we, like, plan this shit, and we're really crafty, and we try to get a theme going every episode. Uh, we don't. We don't. That's okay. so wild. 
to be fair, it like the second cousin of my work, basically. Like he helped create a movement that helped my scientist. I'm super duper intrigued now. <laughs> I was only like, kind of intrigued before, but now I'm super duper intrigued. Oh, That's cool. Yeah, I kind of wasn't even going to mention his name for a hot sack. Yeah, but so like this head honcho guy within, you know, the whole Western esotericism. He was all like, you, sh- you shouldn't show this work to 50 years. And he meant that in a nice way. And like, oddly, he kind of had a good gut feeling, which is like a weird thing to say. Wait, she listened to him? She did. Yeah. I mean, already she wasn't really showing her work publicly at all. Or at least not, okay. not the temple paintings. So Helma, she did take a pause from painting to care for her blind mother. You know, she made some medical arrangements and she was able to throw herself back into painting after a while, um, you know, come the 19 teens. And after wrapping up the paintings for the temple, she did branch out and explore a little bit more traditional naturalistic themes like botany. But doing the work, it always had the constant underpinnings of her specific brand of spiritualism. Like, she did a whole series of botany illustrations and then donated to the society that she was a part of. You know, as years go on, her mother passes away in 1920. She's 58. Helma's producing large body work. And, you know, Europe is creeping closer and closer to World War II. And with the rise of fascism, I mean, there's one thing the Nazis hate, and that's modern art. Yeah. Yeah. Now, for Helma, she's just focused on her art and spiritualism, I mean, which for her are one and the same. You know, and with her parents passing, Helma comes to live and work in a mansion that Anna built for them to be able to go out in the city and enjoy nature and do their spiritual seance shit. Not a bad best friend to have. No. So she's got a studio out there. In 1937, Anne dies. She's 75. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, at this point, they've known one another for over 40 years. Right. And she, Anne, leaves the estate to Hilma. Oh. Everything. And oh, my come God. 1944, Hilma's 82 and she passes away. Oh. Okay. So, like, when people have passed away, it's been, like, especially when they're older, it's more, like, natural causes. And you're like, oh, that's shitty. But, you know, it happens. She's 82. She got hit by a fucking car. <laughs> Sorry, that's not funny. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she died from her injuries in a car accident. Oh my god! Isn't that some fucking bullshit? That's some fucking bullshit. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, so she's 82, 44, she passes away. And she leaves oh behind the estate that she had inherited from Anna, because Anna never married. And with it, over 1,300 paintings and 125 note and sketchbooks. Where did it go? You're going to find out in a hot sec. Oh, God. So, unfortunately, after Hilma's death, it was a matter of, like, what do we do with all her stuff? She had no formal will drawn up, and she left behind no money. Anna's family didn't want anything to do with it. Sweden was startlingly neutral during the war, but there were still those that didn't want to be caught with art that the Nazis deemed a no-no. And on top of that, the landowner wanted everything gone. I mean, he was going to demolish the property. So, thankfully, a nephew stepped up and in a mad dash scooped up all the art. And while Hilma didn't have a will, she did request that her art never be broken up and would only be shown 20 years after her death, which to this day, you know, has been honored pretty well. And all that art, it ended up in the um, the Hilma off Clint Foundation. So it's now nice. a formal organization that the family still runs um, and they, they've kept everything together. And, you know, over 40 years after the works that had been made, Hilma's paintings for the temple, they were finally shown to the public for the first time in 1986 at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Ever since then, they, they've shown internationally. 
the curator of the Hilma show at the Modern Museum in Stockholm uh, and Iris Muller Westernman describes, quote, nice mothers in control and perfectly dressed. It is chic to come to the museum who found themselves crying but unable to explain as they like looked upon Hilma's paintings. Jesus. Yeah. And like while they're abstract, there's this undeniable force to Hilma's paintings that make them really captivating. It's almost like if you stare at them long enough, they'll kind of reveal like their incomprehensible logic behind them. And, you know, to date, the retrospective at the Guggenheim Museum of Hilma's work this year, it closed just in April. Um, it has been their best attended show, like ever. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And they're one of the top It just gets museums. more and more intense. And it, it got intense really quick because you're like, okay, for decades, no one's seeing her work. And then all of a sudden this year, you know, 2019, and it's like the top show for the Guggenheim Museum. But it's funny because it's worth noting that while appreciation for Hilma has skyrocketed in the last few years, I mean, they're still snubs. So the Museum of Modern Art in Europe, they had this really big show about, you know, the whole creation and invention of, of abstraction within Western art in 2012. And they fucking left her out. What? Yeah, they're like, eh, her work's like spiritual. It's, it's different. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I mean, during her lifetime, she had a very different creative life compared to other people we've profiled. And then after her death, too, things were different because she didn't want her work broken up. You know, that did have implications on her international appreciation. Her work is not sold on the art market. And I mean, unfortunately, that's a significant way to value art. Um, I mean, if a private collector can't make a multi-million wooding bid on a painting, like, is it even really good? Oh, dear. So yeah, she didn't let financial obligations dictate her art. You know, she did show her traditional landscapes here and there. Her reluctance to share publicly her spiritual paintings, I think, you know, was a means of creative self-preservation. And what resulted are these really amazing paintings that, you know, Hilma knew during her time she was crafting for a future audience. And I think it worked out pretty well. So shit got a little weird. A little bit. A little, a little different route. Uh, but we're here. And um, yeah, that is Hilma off Clint, who for her unity is everything. Well then. Yeah. I don't. I, it's hard to follow. Every episode, I'm like, I'm going to plan ahead who I'm going to do. And so sure enough, for this episode, I was doing my random number generator thing again. I was like, nope, 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 nope. Uh, you can work. I don't know much about you. And. I didn't know what I was getting in for. That's kind of how this started. I looked up marine biologist, and I did not expect where it landed me. I mean, what was something really unexpected about your marine biologist? I would classify her as a science writer because she did start there. Okay. Actually, she started somewhere else. Let me... Oh my God, was she a sexologist? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so her name was Rachel Carson. She is an author, a marine biologist, and an environmentalist. She was born May 27, 1907 in Springdale, Pennsylvania. Her father's name was Robert Warden Carson. Her mom's name was Maria Fraser. She grew up on essentially a 65-acre farm. So she was surrounded by nature, and she loved it. She also loved reading, so she would always read, and all of her her favorite books were, like, nature-based. As well, one of her favorites was Beatrix Potter. Yeah, I was waiting for you to say that. Yeah. All right, that's good stuff. Like that. <laughs> Shameless plug, we might have done Beatrix Potter in episode eight. Oh, all right, you have the master list in front of you. That's right, fuzzy bunnies and spiders and furries. Oh, my. Oh, my. 
she eventually started writing, and she was first published when she was 11. What? That's awesome. Yeah. It was like a little kitty magazine, but it was pretty cool. But still, yeah. 1924, after she went through, you know, elementary school, middle school, whatever, she went to the Pennsylvania College for Women. Uh, she originally went for English because she liked to write. And mm-hmm. then she had a biology teacher, Mary Scott Skinker, who basically was like, you really need to switch to biology. And she was like, all right. Okay. I mean, shit, a bit of a jump, but why not? So she was there like five years because she had like financial problems. I mean, who the fuck doesn't? Exactly. But she graduated magnum cum laude in 1929. You know, it's funny. There's been quite a few people we've covered between artists and scientists that just so happened to earn that title. Yeah. Something about, you know, smart women. Um, Yeah. Being dedicated and, and focused on their pursuits. You know, little things. Yeah. So she went to graduate school at Johns Hopkins in the fall of 1921. Badass. And she was a a part-time student, though. Okay. Because she, she, like, couldn't just pay for it. So she took an assistantship with, uh, like, another famous biologies lab there. Okay. And basically she was studying rats and a specific genus of flies that basically their biggest characteristic is that they are, like, attracted to rotting fruit. It's called drosophilia, in case you're wondering. Aren't those types, don't they reproduce fairly quickly, so they're a really great subject matter? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their lifespans are minuscule. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So, her graduate dissertation there was on embryonic development of the pronophros in fish. Baby fish. Okay. Baby fish, specifically the early development of what is essentially the pre-kidney. Super fucking specific, but okay. All right. (laughs) She got it, and she earned her master's in 1932. I don't know, man. Good stuff. She wanted to keep going, but the Great Depression happened. You know what? That's some bullshit. Yeah, we've, we've had a few people kind of hit that same. Yeah. Uh... So she had to support her family, mm-hmm. and then her dad died in 1935. Okay. So she had to take care of her mom. Yeah. So Mary Scott Skinker, her mentor mm-hmm. from her undergrad... Yeah. Uh, was like, hey, you should look into government jobs, specifically the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, there has to be one. Who's going to get your, who else are you going to go through to get your fishing permits? But all right. You know. Yeah. So it's just, it was just put in place for the maintenance and conservation of fish and fisheries. Yeah. So basically her first job was writing and I, that was like in the D.C. area. So she moved down there to take care of her family, specifically in the Maryland side. Okay. Yeah. So she wrote radio copies for, like, educational programs put out by the Bureau, and it was called Romance Underwaters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. It wasn't really catching on because nobody wanted to know. It wasn't exciting. But apparently she did really well, and she was, like, drumming up the general public audience. Yeah, a bit of an audience. Mm-hmm. And then, like, on the side, she also wrote articles about the Chesapeake Bay and would send them out to local magazines. Good stuff. All right. Uh, so things are moving. She's stirring up interest in the uh, Romance Underwater series. <laughs> <laughs> are there – is there surviving audio of that radio show? I'm gonna. I haven't looked it up yet, but I've definitely. That's on my list of things to look up because I really need to know. I really need to know. I just imagine like bubble sounds. 
<laughs> for two very different fishes. <laughs> oh my god. Um she eventually becomes the second woman hired by the bureau for a full-time position as a junior aquatic biologist. That's good stuff. So she's getting up there. <laughs> she's she's doing sciencey things. She's analyzing and reporting field data on fishy populations. She writes brochures about them for the general public. She's making brochures, writing for the Baltimore Sun, and then her sister dies in 1937. Did she also die of the flu? I am not sure. But what I do know is that she's now financially responsible for not just her mother, but her two nieces as well. We are stressed. She is stressed. Actually, on here it says we're stressed because when I was writing this, I was stressed. (laughs) So in big capitalized letters, it's we're stressed. And then a break in the paragraph and then it starts going again. So, yeah. Yeah. She's still working. Apparently, when she was writing her first brochures for the Bureau of Fishies, she got a little ambitious. Professor was like, no, this is too good to be a brochure. So she submits it to the Atlantic Monthly, and what was originally titled The World of Waters, which was the brochure, gets published as Undersea in the Atlantic Monthly. Okay. Publishing people, Simon and Schuster get a hold of it, and they're like, yo, please make this into a book. She does, and her first book is published. It's called Under the Sea Wind, and it was in 1941. And it sold poorly. She bought all the publications stopped. She bought the rest of the copies. Oh, Yeah. That's very so depressing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just put them in the attic. Someone goes up there for the Christmas decorations. You're like, don't Aww. ask about the boxes. Just don't Marked my personal that. failure. Just don't ask. Oh, no. Tinsel to the left. So sad. It, it gets better. It gets better. She tries to leave the Bureau of Fishies, but there are no solid science writing jobs because all of the money is going to Dr. Wu and her nuclear harnessing power because it's in the 1940s. I mean, I don't remember the name of that machine that they had. Particle Accelerator? At UCLA. Berkeley? Yeah. I mean, it seems like, unfortunately, there's not much money in fishies. Unfortunately not. So she stays because government jobs are prime, yo. Get them benefits. Those benefits. She continues to work, and, like, she's kind of partially introduced to DDT, and she's like, what in the actual fuck is this nonsense? So, what is this nonsense? I know that shit is not good, and fucking eagles and their liquefied gelatin egg babies do not appreciate it at all. Well, that's the end of our podcast, people. She did both of our sides this time. <laughs> Megan cracked the case we're going home now Are we, yeah we're done that's it we're done we're done well uh, thank you for joining us in another episode of my favorite feminist um, <laughs> leave your comments in the section below the iTunes right right subscribe review <laughs> always appreciate it um, um, okay so DDT I have not ever said this word Dichlorodiphenyltrichloroethane? You know what? If you just say it really fast, I won't know that you're mispronouncing it because I don't know what the fuck that is. So you have me fooled. (laughs) Short form is DDT, and it's tasteless, it's odorless, it's a chemical compound, and it's used as an insecticide. 
At that time, it was just starting to undergo a safety test, and it was on her radar, but nobody really was caring about it, and she had to put it on the back burner, which sucks. Yeah, because that shit is fucking gross. And she also had, like, a billion things on her plate, so no one wanted to publish articles on it, and she was also supervising a small staff of fishy writers, Mm -hmm. so that has its own sets of challenges, just being a manager of a bunch of writers. So in 1949, she becomes the chief editor of publications there. Okay, working her way up. That's pretty solid. She was annoyed, though. She wanted to write. Yeah. So she decided it was time for her second publication. Where'd you go with that one? She made a, like a second book about the ocean in 1950 called The Sea Around Us. And it was just the history of it. So instead of like snapshots of what you would see, it went from like the beginning to current <laughs> Of the history of the ocean. A long, long time ago. A few billion years ago. But, like, Megan. Yeah. That shit was on the New York Times bestseller list for 86 weeks. Holy shit. No, that's amazing. (laughs) It really takes someone special to be able to bridge these, like, really academically dense subjects with capturing the public's interest in them. In Sane. It won several awards. It earned her two honorary doctorates. There was even a film. What? Yeah. So with that, unfortunately, she hated it because there were scientific inconsistencies because she had no control over the script. Oh, God, that would have driven me fucking mad. She was so upset. And then afterwards, people were like, okay, you're right. So they made like a documentary about it. Yeah. With like real science. And she won an Academy Award for it, apparently. But she was just like, fuck it. I'm literally never selling my rights ever again. Oh, my God. Okay. That's fucking crazy. That took a turn. Yeah. She was like, I'm not like, I don't ever want to go through this again. Yeah. She was done. Can you imagine being at the Academy Awards and you're just handing out copies of your first book? (laughs) <laughs> You're like, I knew you get a book. I knew you get a book. Here, I'll even sign it for you. There you go. What's the... I just... It's some tinsels. It's some tinsel on the pages. Just shake it out. Shake it out. Oh, my God. That's so funny. Regardless, though, she was rolling in money, and she was able to take care of her mom and her nieces, and she was able to quit her job at the Bureau of Fisheries. Awesome. Yeah, so she could now write full-time. Yeah. And write full-time she does. She... Basically, this is a weird, like, offset, and I want to add it in because I think it's really sweet, and I think you would appreciate it, so it's here. She wants a place to write, and where better to write than your own fancy house in Southport Island, Maine? Okay. She gets a a big mansion. Well, probably not a mansion. It's just a fancy house. It's pretty great. Yeah. So she – I don't get it, but I get it. She had a neighbor – named Dorothy Freeman. They exchanged an obscene amount of letters. Yeah. And like, I don't know about you, but I don't exchange letters with my neighbors. If I want to talk to somebody or get to know somebody, I just do so in person. All I know is that these letters became like the center of a lot of rumor and a lot of talk. They probably did hang out together, but they didn't just hang out together because they exchanged around 900 letters. Okay, over how long a period? 12 years. Okay. They were super close. It was like, but oh darling, I want to be with you so terribly that it hurts. Lovers. They were lovers. They were not neighbors. They were lovers. (laughs) All right, (laughs) lesbians, move it on. (laughs) I 
love you beyond expression. My love is boundless as the sea. I mean, okay, also to be fair, I think I've written you a few Valentine's Day notes like that. No, okay, so that's that's the point. That's why I think you would appreciate it is because they were like, no, like legitimately, this is just my best friend and we love each other and this isn't a romantic thing, but we have so much love for each other that like we can express it openly and honestly and not be weird about it. But people mm-hmm. were being weird about it and because people were being weird about it, they actually ended up burning a lot of their letters. I don't I don't blame them, especially if we're talking 1950s and 60s. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dorothy Freeman was like, she was trying to kind of explain the friendship to her husband, and her husband was kind of weird about it. And she was like, you know what, fuck it. Nobody gets to see any of this. It's just, it's just me and Rachel, right? Mm-hmm. But some letters did survive. And those letters eventually made themselves into a book. Okay. Yeah, it was called Always Rachel, The Letters of Rachel Carson and Dorothy Freeman, An Intimate Portrait of Remarkable Friendship. Oh, that's pretty sweet. I kind of want to read it. I know. That's what we should. We'll both get copies. A little book club. Um, <laughs> it was actually done by Dorothy Freeman's grand- granddaughter. She saw that. And she was like, I think people need to read this. I need people. I think people need to see how great this friendship was. So I thought it was sweet. The granddaughter gets it. She's like, I know what's up. <laughs> that hetero love. She, and I mean, she's doing that. She's also, 1953, she starts field research on the ecology and organisms of the Atlantic shore. She's basically gunning for a third book. She's making a trilogy. It was called The Edge of the Sea, and it was published in 1955. So that one was also well-received, but it wasn't like the second book. Mm -hmm. But it was like, okay, oh, she came out with another one. Very cool. Nice. So people start to know her name. 1955, 1956, she writes for an educational television show, articles for magazines. She knew that her next book was going to be on conservation and she honestly started to find herself involved with like the nature conservancy um she was talking about buying land in maine so that others wouldn't buy it and develop it she referred Mm -hmm. to it as the lost woods but she's kind of like teetering and in 1957 one of her nieces dies and now she has to take care of her niece's son as well as her aging mother yeah Yeah, so yeah she's just constantly like okay all right i'll take you everything's gonna be fine guys yeah it was very weird yeah So they end up moving to Silver Spring, Maryland. One, she can raise him. And two, Mm -hmm. she can study specific threats to the eastern shore. Okay. So she was looking for her next subject to write about. And she found her inspiration in conservation, specifically conservation from environmental poisons. Which, yeah, 1950s, 1960s, we're pumping that shit out everywhere. Exactly. So she knew about DDT, which was kind of dubbed the insect bomb. They were basically trying to feed off of like the bomb scenario where like we're going to win the war kind of bullshit. Mm -hmm. And then in 1957, she gets wind of the Gypsy Moth Eradication Program. So it was an aerial spray of DDT and other pesticides and also like freaking fuel oil over land and private land at that. Yeah, and sometimes, like, trucks would come down neighborhoods spraying shit like that. It was so crazy, and she wasn't happy, and neither was the Audubon Naturalist Society. They reached out to her because they needed a writer. They needed someone to help create public awareness of the current spraying practices that were happening in the country. And it took about four years to culminate in its entirety. It turns out there was a large scientific community documenting pesticides and their effects. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, she also had her connections with environmental scientists from her fish's job, her fishy job. Yeah. And those scientists, they had their own friends who weren't specifically, like, fish-related, but mm-hmm. they were definitely in the environment world. Most of those friends were government scientists and would actually share confidential information with her because they weren't agreeing with, with yeah, what was happening. Yeah, the federal yeah. policies in place. Mm-hmm. The thing is that she pulled evidence from both ends of the spectrum. So she pulled from, like, U.S. government scientists, and then she pulled shit from, like, biodynamic agricultural farmers. Okay. That's when our friend Steiner comes in. Not specifically Steiner, but, like, this movement was based off of, like, his movements and his theories. And if you go to their website for the Biodynamic Agricultural website, they, like, say things that are like, oh, we're holistic and we're one with the cosmos. And I mean, yeah, I mean, that was a big theme for um, Hilma. I was unity is everything. Everyone, you know, everything's connected in the universe with one another. I mean, yes. So I think they're all crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, truthfully, I I mean, like, yes, everything is delicate and we should worry about what our actions have in consequence with the world around us. Absolutely. You can't just walk around doing shit and expect there not to be consequences because everything has to work together. You can't just be a dominant force and expect everything to work like a smooth machine i get Mm -hmm. that however 99 percent of the time i side with proven science and i roll my eyes when somebody comes to me and talks to me about like diatomaceous earth for like flea prevention because guess what your dog still has fleas stop it just stop right but at the same time these are the people that come to you about Biological pest control. So instead of it being like pesticides with a bunch of chemicals being pumped out into the air, it was more about introducing natural prey into the environment. Yeah. Where we where we want to get rid of them. Like natural prey. Mm-hmm. And yes, there would be some consequences introducing an entirely new species into like an ecosystem. We get that. But the, the cons to that. Like one's going to give you cancer and the other one isn't. Yes. I mean, like, it's just, yeah, one's going to give you cancer. One might, there might be the eradication of a, of a certain plant that we may have wanted, but nobody's getting cancer. It's like letting a spider live in your house because you know it's going to get rid of other things. Or it's like leaving a possum alone because you know they're going to eat ticks and ticks carry diseases. It's, mm-hmm. it's nature, which I'm cool with. Not the spiders, but though, you don't like the spiders. No, no, I don't like the spiders. I'm at the point now where I see when I go, okay, you deserve to live, but I'm going to go on the other side of the room now. Thanks. Oh, that's progress. That's progress. That is progress Good. compared to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to cry at the sight of them. Okay. So these biodiverse, eco-holistic farmers are pulling on these principles of like 19th century spiritualism. Yes. She's got proven scientists. She's got a bunch of holistic hippies. I guess they're called hipsters now. And then on top of that, The Library of Medicine of the National Institute of Health and the National Cancer Institute are finding links between pesticides and cancer. So many of those insecticides were classified as, like, carcinogens, and carcinogens are what cause cancer. Mm -hmm. So, like, she was getting data from those labs as well. Now she's, like, halfway through her research. Things are heating up. She writes letters to the Washington Post that would talk about the decline of the bird population being brought on by pesticides. The Great Cranberry Scandal happened in 1957, which literally cranberry production and sales stopped because they had a high 
They had high levels of a herbicide that was known to cause cancer in lab rats. Okay. You know, let alone people. So, like, they had to stop and figure it out. Yeah. It was becoming a huge deal. Countless of cases were, were putting pesticides on trial. Defense attorneys, though, they were like sharks. So they were being hired by the U.S. government to win these all of these trials. Yeah. And then on top of that, the USDA's Agricultural Research Service is pumping out films called The Fire Ant on Trial. And I was just actually kind of watching it earlier. It was like I didn't get through all of it because I I had to come in here. But basically, it started with an ant telling you about his life and his family. And I'm a living being creature and these men are trying to control us. And then it goes to like an entomologist. So like an insect scientist. Yeah. Who's like, you've listened to the ant side. Now listen to our side. And of course, it was just nothing but like propaganda so that they could use all of these chemicals what the united states government has never done anything that would harm the well-being of their citizens no not even close so she continues with the research she she continues to speak out about it there's obviously backlash people are starting to know her name and what she's about and all that good stuff 1960 she gets ill like january so several infections a duodenal ulcer, so it's like a part of a small intestine. There's an ulcer there. Okay. Yeah. Something, something's wrong. She was fighting all these issues for weeks. Writing was starting to slow down, and then, like in March, she went to the doctor, and there were two cysts in her left breast. And then you said it was January when she initially got sick. Yeah. Okay, so th- three months. Okay. Yeah. She was told to get them removed, that it was, like, precautionary, that there wouldn't need any, like, further treatment after that, um, and then everything would be okay. But by December, it was actually diagnosed as malignant. Ooh. Yeah. Most of the writing and research was done by then, so they really just had to work about, like, marketing and... Publication, timelines. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So she didn't tell anybody really about her diagnosis because then apparently she would have been biased by talking out against things that cause cancer... Yeah, I get it. It's shitty, but I get it. Yeah, it, it it does suck. Because I knew by the time that the publication would come out, she would be fighting with, like, a bunch of chemo and treatments, and she'd be super tired. Like, the marketing team worked nonstop. And also because they knew that there was a possibility of being sued for libel by the chemical company. So they wanted to make sure that everything was, like, solid before mm-hmm. they, like, went out. So Carson intended, like, a conference on conservation... Uh, the publishing company, Houghton Mifflin, distributed proof copies of the book to many of the delegates. They also sent out a copy to the Supreme Court Associate Justice William O. Douglas. So he was into, like, environmental advocation. So they were doing anything to, like, really cover their butts legally. Yeah, no, they were really on it. These guys are crazy. Serialization in The New Yorker, uh, positive editorial in The New York Times... So there was a chemical company who was threatening legal action if they continued with the book. Uh, There were other chemical industries who, and like lobbyists who basically decided to submit a range of nonspecific complaints. They were like, this is bad. I'm not really sure why, but bad. Just to (laughs) use up their, their energy to have to address them. Um, And then, of course, chemical companies made their own brochures and articles promoting pesticide use because they had to they had to drum up the public to side with them. Yeah. Um, The thing is that they decided or they thought that she was going or (laughs) that she was advocating for the absolute ban of pesticides, which wasn't the case. Easy to cast your opponent like an extremist like that. 
That's exactly what they did. Yeah. yeah. They were very, they were very, oh, she's just drumming up, like, alarm. She's just, she's just an extremist, that sort of thing. And that's not the case because she knew that you couldn't absolutely outright ban pesticides, especially mm-hmm. not at this point. What yeah. she did want was she wanted regulated use. She wanted to use it if absolutely necessary because of the negative effects in the environment on humans, on organisms, how much destruction these things cause. And also because if you overuse something, there's going to be resistance. So just like there's like bacteria becomes resistant. If you overprescribe antibiotics, all of a sudden it no longer works. Yeah. Yeah. Or like vaccines. Well, how do you think that works? You're literally getting pumped with a virus that looks exactly like or is basically the same thing. It's just dead. But your immune system is like, what's that? And then they become used to it. They become resistant to the virus. That's what a vaccine is. So there's a reason to not overuse it because these insects are going to become like super bugs for real. And then what are we going to do? We're going to put more chemicals, even worse chemicals out into the world. And it's not going to be fun. Do you know, so are pesticides covered under USDA or um, the, the FDA? So originally it was the USDA. I wonder. So okay. we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that in a second. Okay. They went ahead with production and publication anyway because they were covering their ass and they had gone through all of their data and they're like, no, we want to we put this out. Yeah, like, fuck you guys. We're doing it. Right? So critics obviously attacked her. They started with her scientific background because she was a marine biologist first. So what would what would she know about pesticides and chemicals? Um, there are people going, basically saying, if we follow what she wants, she's such an alarmist that will basically send us into the dark ages again where insects will roam free and kill us all. Jesus. Okay. That was a paraphrase of a quote that I have written down here. Yeah. And then this is this is the thing that made me laugh out loud at work because I was reading for this and I was like, are you kidding me? Former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Ezra Taft Benson writes a letter to President Dwight D. Eisenhower. He was like, she's unmarried, but physically attractive. She must be a communist. Yeah. I mean, that fucking red scare. That was <laughs> just nothing to joke about. And again, it was it was such an easy way for politicians and government officials to, like, slander those they didn't like for their own personal gain. It was such an easy thing to do. Unreal. So she goes on to, like, CBS reports. She's reading Silent Spring on TV. People responding positively to it. After, like, a year or so, attacks on the book and Carson just started to, like, not happen anymore. Mm-hmm. So she actually ended up testifying before President John F. Kennedy's Science Advisory Committee as like a scientist for the regulation of these chemicals, Mm -hmm. basically making policy recommendations. That became the first major milestone in the campaign against DDT. So, I mean, like her her book was part of it, but that hearing helped create momentum. I mean, that's that's great because that shit, as we know, is not something you want to fuck with. Yeah, no. But her health was just getting worse and worse, and she was weakened from her breast cancer, and she became ill a lot, and then, like, Mm -hmm. April 14th of 1964, she dies of a heart attack. Oh. Yeah. The book, The Last One, Silent Spring, was the start of a social movement in the 1960s. Eventually, it was used to ban the use of DDT in the United States. And then, yes, so... 
most of the concerns that Carson had basically about the fact that the USDA was the same agency responsible for both regulating and promoting. So, like, there was a conflict of interest. They wanted to make money by using these particular pesticides, and they're not going to regulate something if they need to use it. They need to make money. Yeah. So her concerns of, like, why aren't these two things separated, that's where the EPA comes in. And much of that work from the EPA, so, like, Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act was directly related to Carson's work. I mean, that's that's great. And it shows the importance of not being bullied when you're taking on these larger companies who have typically so much more financial standing than you do. I mean, they could have easily have broken her. But yeah. I think with the amount of data that she had, the amount of scientists that she had, the amount of communities that she had behind yeah, that her public and her interest. Work, yeah. Yeah. And then also, whether she knew it or not, she helped with the rise of ecofeminism and many feminist scientists. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, she's got a bunch of things honoring her name. So she got the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1980. Uh, She had a series posted stamp issued in her honor. Nice. Uh, Inducted into the National Woman's Hall of Fame. Awesome. University of California named one of its colleges after her. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, her birthplace became a National Register of Historic Places site. Oh, sweet. Um, her home in Colesville, Maryland, where she wrote Silent Spring, was a National Historic Landmark in 1991. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a sculpture of her in Massachusetts. <laughs> it's, it's never-ending. So that, that's great to see that she's really had this impactful legacy Oh, man. She was a queen. She was a trailblazer. She didn't let anything stop her. She used multiple data sources. She crossed all of her T's, dotted all of her I's, and helped take down something that was extremely dangerous to our society. So she's right up there on my favorite scientist list, on my favorite feminist list. There you go. It's almost like that's why we do this shit. Oh, my God. So as always, if you guys have made it this far... You guys are really awesome. We super appreciate it. You guys are wonderful. So, Milena, if people want to find out more about the artists that we've talked about, your scientists, see some of the publications on their work, where can they go? We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. We have a Facebook and Instagram, myfavoritefeminist. We have an email at info at myfavoritefeminist.com. You can listen to us on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and iTunes. And if you're listening on iTunes, please rate, review, all that good stuff. It does help. And in the comments section below, let us know if you could have a seance with anyone, whether it be fictional or not. Who would it be? Would it be a group of people? Megan? Oh my goodness. I think it'd be really fun to have a seance with all the characters from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Although now that I think of it, technically they do that in the opening of book two, the restaurant at the end of the universe. I didn't get that far. It did work in their favor. Oh, it did? Yeah, oh, it did. That. Who would I do? I know who you would do. Your your Swedish scars guard. No, it would be boring. He would just like stand there and be broody. Okay, well fine. I would want like a crew that would like be as ridiculous as I am because you know when I do things, it just has that personal Milena touch, you know? And there's always something weird happening, some weird way of going about the situation. Everything gets done at the end, but it has 
my flavor to it. How about the Spice Girls? Would you do a seance with the Spice Girls? Fuck yeah. All five of them. It has to be all five, though. Yeah, or else you're not going to be able to do your summoning power. (laughs) Exactly. You need all six of us, obviously. All right. Well, as always, you guys are pretty cool. We super duper appreciate it. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.